Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm an American citizen. I pay your salary through the taxes that you collect from me through the IRS because I'm a tax-paying citizen of the United States. I'm a woman, I'm a female business owner, and I'm proud to be an American woman. And I do not support your socialist policies, and I do not support your murderous abortion. This just in on news at House of Decline. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is outside of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's office, trying to put a halt to the Maoist struggle session going on behind closed doors. Now we go live to our correspondent inside of AOC's office to hear what is going on. Chen Gang Well, wow, that was rough. Wow. Welcome to the show. It's House of Decline. I'm Stephen, and uh, we have Alex here today. And yeah. we're joined by a very special guest, Jay, with, uh, I believe it's your third appearance, Jay. I believe it's my fourth appearance. Fourth? Oh, excuse fourth me. Fourth appearance. Because there was that Returning big New Year's champion. episode. Oh, right. Yes. The epic, the epic New Year's. I believe what was going on inside AOC's office appeared to be uh, foot, uh, footage from the Red Violin. Uh, no, it was a Maoist struggle session, a real one. Okay, and it was a real Maoist struggle session occurring in AOC's office, really? Yes. Yes. Wow, that's that's really hard to take in. So I guess uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's what she was seeing through the... Yeah, that's why she was trying to uh, to stop her, because she's a hero. Okay. She... Especially because Maoists tend to have their struggle sessions in Chinese. Like, that's very relevant to the Maoism of today. That is yes. definitely rampant in uh, the CCP. A hundred percent. <laughs> and we're talking about Maoism because, and we have Jay on because I fucked up a lot last episode. I said many wrong things. First of which was in my haste to be woke, I misgendered Gazi, uh, the leader of Black Hammer, uh, calling him uh, uh, gendered, uh, calling him non-binary when he is gender non-conforming, uh, and he uses he pronouns. And in doing so, I chastised Stephen, uh, and I'm sorry, Stephen. It's okay. I should Thank get you. better at using the pronouns. That we all can improve. Uh, we, uh, but I can improve most of all by not being a jerk. Uh, and also, I got several definitions of several things wrong, including Maoism, third worldism, uh, uh, my musings on authoritarian leftism, and also Afro pessimism. And we have an a and Jay is an actual book reader and knows about these things and can help me uh, with my stupidity. Uh, so Jay has kindly offered a bunch of corrections, <laughs> and we're having our own little struggle session on House of Decline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, listen, I, you know, listen, we can't all know everything, but you know, it's uh, this is this, that was that was a rough one for me to listen to, especially because like I'm you know know both you guys personally, so listening to your podcast sometimes it's like oh I'm in a conversation with people I could just actually be having this conversation with, but I can't talk back to them. Mm. Yes. I understand. It's, it is very frustrating to hear people say wrong things and then not be able to correct them, especially when you know, ah, I could contribute. 
You can always you can always email houseofdecline at gmail.com. Any complaints or corrections, and we'll address them in the next episode, if that ever yeah. happens again. Absolutely. We are very responsive to fan mail. <laughs> yeah, so I'll uh, send you all of the dick pics. Nice. So, so, Jay, last episode, I believe that I foolishly defined Maoism third worldism as basically just, you know, the buy a world a Coke commercial. That was basically my definition. <laughs> it's like all the all all races and creeds getting together and, you know, come, it was a very loose and vague definition. Can you tell me what I got wrong and what what is Maoism third worldism? Yeah, and listen, I don't want to belabor the point. Like, I'm not, we're not doing a, you know, a, uh, you know, a reading group or anything. So, you know, I'm going to keep it fairly general. But, you know, one point you really kind of hammered home was the sort of this concept of uh, a Marxist internationalism as being mm -hmm. so sort of a cornerstone of it, uh, which is not necessarily wrong. But the thing is, that's kind of the most base classical any kind of Marxism. Like, uh, you know, Marx literally set up things called internationales, where socialists right. from around the world gathered and struggled and kind of decided their policy. And this was something that, you know, ostensibly existed throughout the history of the Soviet Union uh, and that, you know, the Chinese uh, Communist Party had participated in. So internationalism, I think, is, is a broad kind of cornerstone of all Marxian thought. Mm -hmm. um, what, I, what, what Mao really brought to the table um, was, I, you know, uh, in classical Marxism, which I don't think anybody really is a classical Marxist, but um, it's very, his theory is very much set up on industrial accumulation, right? So the possibility, the historical possibility for socialism comes out of the fact that capitalism has created these sort of uh, industrial factory situations so that, uh, which is both exploitative, but creates the opportunities for workers to uh, create solidarity with each other and uh, more easily take control of the means of production. Uh, mm -hmm. And what that does is it really kind of corners out the agrarian market, like the kind of classical Marxists or Soviet Marxists are kind of like, these these kind of chum have to come along. Us, you know, the, the revolution's going to happen in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very, now, we fuck the farmers, essentially. It's like the farmers are just tangential to our movement, and it's really the factory workers that are of primacy. Well, there, it's where the revolution's going to happen, right? And I think, and there's not, it's not, again, like this blanket discrimination of people who, you know, work on farms. It's just, you know, it, in a practical level, when you all are next to each other, it's a lot easier to talk to each other about how you're being exploited and how shitty that is uh, than it is when you're, you know, 20 acres away from your next neighbor and they're mm -hmm. 20 acres away from their next neighbor. Yeah. The idea of like of being a freehold landowner essentially alienates you from your fellow workers. That sort of that's a recurring theme as well, right? Yeah, and that kind of comes out of the sort of historical perspective that comes from Hegel, right? Which is like, you know, Marx lo doesn't love capitalism, but he really respects it, and he thinks that capitalism is something that needs to happen before socialism can happen, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't believe you can go from feudalism to co communism. You need to have an industrialization process. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the argument, that's a lot of the early, you know, 20th century critique, uh, socialist critique of uh, the Soviet Union uh, was that basically they had tried to create a communism with basically uh, a without having industrialized uh, sufficiently, yeah. uh, which created a lot of the problems uh, that that's that would be their argument. Then we get Mao coming in and, you know, China in the 40s and 50s 
you know, if, if, if in the 20s, Russia was not properly industrialized, China was certainly not in this very broad Marxist category, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the pillars of uh, Maoism is a focus on actually uh, agrarian solidarity and the agrarian class as uh, workers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is, uh, and, and this becomes, this is why I think in a lot of ways, uh, Maoism really took off in Africa as sort of a mm. dominant form of communism, uh, because it did not, it did not say we need to go through this hundred year process of exploitation industrialization to have emancipation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I guess my last point on that is you talk about third worldism, uh, which is a difficult topic to deal with now because we're post, uh, uh, cold war. But right. the concept of the third world comes out of Cold War ideology, where in the first world would be the sphere, imperial spheres of influence of the United States. Uh, the second world would be the imperial sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. And then there mm -hmm. would be um, the, 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 and the third world. So now we talk about third world as any country that's poor. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it was, it was uh, another name for it would be, uh, be similar to the, the non-aligned movement. Yeah, uh, people that did people that just simply didn't take sides between Russia and uh, and America in the Cold War. Right. And so that third worldism for Maoism is is a kind of reinterpretation of the internationalism I discussed earlier, where mm -hmm. that there should be solidarity, uh, but also recognizing the USSR as an imperial power. Uh, and so when you have, you know, Sadat and uh, uh, Tito and Mao, the sort of... Uh, really revolutionary socialist figures who did not kind of take part in either of those projects, uh, those really, you know, uh, the former Yugoslavia, Egypt, uh, in some ways, Syria, and very much China, uh, mm -hmm. sort of create, the, for a period of time, created this sort of third position. Jeez. Uh, uh, you can't not, say not, third yeah, anything well, anymore. Stay away from that one, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, this sort of uh, different level of internationalist solidarity, uh, mm -hmm. a more modern one. Uh, so right. that's what... Uh, so and now it would be again, there is interesting conversations about third worldism, but that would make I think any reasonable way about talking about it would have to make China the second world now. Yeah. But so so the third worldism now would be countries like Bolivia. And uh, well, I guess that's kind of it because Bolivia because Maduro's aligned with Russia, but Russia is not a, a superpower. Or, I mean, they're they are a superpower, but they're not like a Cold War superpower. They aren't like a second world superpower like they were before. Yeah, they're a regional superpower. So it would be, you know, I think you could make an argument for, say, the Bolivarian states in Latin America and, you know, uh, some of the states uh, in, you know, particularly in uh, the politics of Southern Africa would be a, is an area where people talk about third worldism as a sort of uh, political potential. Uh, BRICS uh, was kind of, yeah. you know, people talked about that. And the joining of regional powers, like, for instance, like Russia and India could be considered as a, a third worldist alliance, again, if it was not run by two fascist parties. <laughs> yeah, that's more of an axis. Yeah. Yes. But if there was a, a there, there could be a viable workers movement within each of those countries. And for them as two regional powers, that, that would create an interesting block uh, to maybe mitigate the other two great world economic powers. Um. So and the goal of third worldism being as sort of like a regulation or a check, a way to achieve solidarity without um, relying on these failed systems that have existed before and have dominated us previously. Is that the idea? Yeah. And, you know, so there's 
uh, Lenin wrote a really probably if anyone's if it, if you read one thing by Lenin, you've probably read the book that's uh, that's that goes the line. I think it's called Capitalism is an Imperialism, mm-hmm. and the Leninists really had this theory that. You know, again, if we're talking about, you know, Marxist idea of capitalism, of history building on itself through contradictions and creating the next system, um, he really, uh, the Bolsheviks really saw imperialism as a, a, a necessary consequence of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Maoists kind of take that line and take it one step further and say, the, you know, the competing major power is itself an imperial power. So it's the internationalism is really an anti-imperialist movement. Hmm. Well, it's fun that it's funny that you talk about the Bolsheviks because that segues into the next thing that I got wrong, which is my general musings around the authoritarian left. Uh, what did I say last episode that particularly, I can't even remember what I said last episode, but I probably said some dumb shit about tankyism and what could be considered a tanky or even what an authoritarian left movement really looks like because it probably doesn't look like black hammer which is what i was alluding to at the time yeah i mean i've kind of it's kind of broad like it was kind of a couple of statements that i will kind of fold into one but one thing that you know because i think was also um tied to some of steven's statements about you know worries about anti-liberal tendencies uh and sort of radical movements Mm -hmm. uh and also yeah and and your kind of allusion to tankyism um and I, this, I have a much less, you know, chapter and verse uh, explanation for that. But I do think that there are a couple things worth uh, noting. For instance, anti-liberalism does not have to be anti-democratic. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, uh, liberal, I mean, if we really think of it, you know, liberalism as having ownership over democracy, then, you know, we can see that it's kind of really incredibly anti-democratic in the way that it, it uses its power in states other than its own. Uh, to wield that same power uh, in the way that it's really liberalism, or at least the countries that have proposed it, have really been probably the most pervasive anti-democratic force globally in the last hundred years, uh, and has really pre- pre- the liberalism here has precluded the possibility of any kind of uh, democracy anywhere else. Um, and so I think that there are different ways about thinking democracy outside of representative voting structures, and I don't I don't think you know the idea. That saying, you know, yeah, we should, you know, 51%, the tyranny of the majority should not, you know, be the base stone for all pro- social progress in our society, especially because most of the social progress we do like, you know, if we t- think about the civil rights movement was broadly unpopular, uh, but because through the use of a minority group who was, would, if there was ever a referendum on would have been, would, had their votes re- voted against every single time through their use of, frankly, uh, civil disobedience and violence had pressured the political class into giving them the rights that they deserve. So, mm-hmm. you know, even within liberal systems, I do think that the idea that everything comes down to a vote is uh, is true uh, or good, and that's how and that that's the only way for democracy to happen. And that maybe groups that might not we might say eschew some of those institutions and the ways that democracy has happened here does not make them authoritarian or anti democratic. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So when we when we talk about, but do you think a more authoritarian left is an antidote to a lot of the problems that we face uh, organizing against you know, the as you said uh, undemocratic liberalism that is the enemy that is currently the enemy of any social progress? Do you think because uh, that's what you know people have been bandying about and it's sort of like 
this this Black Hammer group cosplays an authoritarian left movement in order to sort of get people on their side. Do you think there's any reason why this idea is gaining popularity or the idea that sort of a more tanky-ish approach would be an antidote to the excesses of liberalism? As you just said, the civil rights movement, only through civil disobedience and violence, were a righteous minority able to get what they wanted. So... I don't know, is is like, but with that movement wasn't necessarily authoritarian. So maybe I'm just spinning my wheels here. But do you think it's gotten to the point now where we need that sort of Bolshevism back? Yeah, again, I don't, I kind of, I don't agree with the language of authoritarianism in that position. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, politics is about power. Power, politics is not about compromise. And this whole idea that politics is about some sort of compromise between two sides is really largely been a result of kind of Cold War and post-Cold War ideology. That's not how politics had generally run in the United States or mm -hmm. anywhere. It's about, and frankly, that's why Republicans do better than Democrats, because when they have power, they use power. And I think, you know, a left that has been suppressed for so long and then tried, you know, the, through the failure of the anti-globalization movement, the Occupy movement, the Bernie Sanders campaign, have realized that a, a system that is designed to keep you out is not going to welcome you in, and any way to get mm -hmm. in is to denuder yourself. So I think that there, there is, you know, a growing understanding about amongst movement leftists that yeah. they need to start taking different strategies, and frankly, the strategies that have historically worked versus the ones that have never worked. Yeah, i.e., civil disobedience and well, a touch of a touch of the old uh, touch of the old thing there. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to say it. And, but civil disobedience, but also community organizing, you know, people look at the Black Panthers as a bunch of people who just dressed up and carried guns. But, you know, what they were actually doing and why they were able to create so much social capital in their uh, communities was because they were community organizations that what resources they were not getting from the state, they created the infrastructure for people to have and mm -hmm. including policing, which is why there were so many images of, you know, uh, why so much of the Black Panther movement was actually around gun rights. So yeah, those are those are you know real actionable things uh, that you can do and that will get create solidarity within communities rather than petitioning politicians who don't give a shit about you and every time you fail you say oh well we got to do it again next we got to knock on more doors yeah. where it's like no no you actually you put food in people's mouths and you protect them from the police and you will that's going to create a lot more you know people willing to listen to your ideas about socialism. Yeah, yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more there. I definitely believe that in the old adage of like, oh, get feeding people, we'll get them on your side. I mean, that's what churches do. How do you think people become Christians, right? How do you think, why do you think every, every, every other homeless person you meet loves God, right? Because that's who's giving them food right now. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, you'll even uh, see that like... I I, where I live now in Montreal, you know, I live right by the gay village. I walk through it almost every day. And, you know, COVID, you know, looking at the COVID catastrophe, this is a neighborhood that is almost exclusively bars, restaurants and nightclubs. And so now it's become an open air homeless shelter because there's none of the bit. No, you know, there's no one to shoo them away. And you see every day, like the people really doing the work are mostly religious groups who are going in and giving, you know, wrapping people's wounds and, you know, giving them food and medicine. And I do think, you know, there is a valuable lesson to be learned from that. Yeah. Well, that even then the maybe it's not authoritarianism we need, but Gnosticism, which is something that uh, religious people have that this sort of irony left doesn't. 
this sort of true belief in achieving the impossible. I don't yes. know. Well, no, all ideology is utopian. If any mm. any ideology worth having is utopian, and the problem is, is that we've all grown up with this liberal ideology for so long, so we actually don't real that liberalism is itself also a utopian ideology, mm. and it treats everything that's not liberalism as pie in the sky. But no, it all is, and you you always you know yes, we are probably not going to make the most perfect version of the world today, tomorrow, or in our lifetimes, but we are not going to get anywhere close if we don't aim for the goal. Well, that's what it's it's great that you mentioned the Black Panthers too because that uh directly dovetails speaking of like people that are not gnostic as well is the Afro-pessimism movement. Yeah. Uh, I mean before we move on to that I will just want to say that like I do think that anti-liberalism is a perfectly viable position. Like I would say my politics are anti-liberal. Mm. Uh I I think my political actions and organizing and ideology are against the dominant mode of political ideology and where I live, which is liberalism. And so, but I don't think that makes my position or the position of my comrades anti-democratic. If anything, mm -hmm. I think we're more highly democratic in our ideals than uh, those we're trying to defeat. Yeah, I mean, no, as, you... as a liberal, I am uh, anti-democratic almost by nature. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I would agree. I Liberals definitely do not need to be Democratic. I mean, that's why America is set up in an undemocratic way. It's, you know, we there's a special group of people who get to make all the decisions because um, God favors them. Mm -hmm. kind but of that, like, I mean, kind of we like talk about Weber all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's that is America. That's the uh, we are the God's chosen. We are God's favorite. Uh, and that also animates another group of people that we're going to be talking about later in this episode. But before we do, but before we do, I, yeah, my Afro-pessimism thing was especially jumbled. I mean, I read the definition, but I definitely didn't understand it. Um, and I probably yeah. leveled a pretty basic criticism of it that they've thought of before, which is, you know, what about indigenous people, though? It seems like we hate them a lot, too. <laughs> yeah, which I think is kind of very, which is, I think, one of the, the biggest misunderstanding there. Uh, I will say yeah. for the record, you know, I am... Um, one of those people who teaches and works in within a context of a critical race, uh, Afro-pessimism is not something I have been incredibly well read in, but I have, after doing a little bit of research, read and engaged with and frankly published on quite a few of the people who are the precedent uh, figures and that they base a lot of their thought on. Um, mm -hmm. So one thing I, I wanted to correct is that it was basically that one where you, you quote Sadia Hartman, uh, who's a very nice lady. Uh, mm -hmm. And she talks and, I, you know, I'd like to pre pre what they're prefacing is something that's not quite so different as this phrase BIPOC that has become, been brought to our consciousness. Right. Yeah. Uh, and maybe as an aside, you know, we have a mutual friend who is recently posting on Facebook about, you know, why why am I not considered BIPOC as a uh, Middle Eastern person? Uh, mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, and there was like, why, am I not a person of color? Uh, and that is not really what's at stake. I think the concept of things like BIPOC and Afro-pessimism is that, you know, the concept of quote-unquote racism as a one-size-fit-all tent actually does very little expl explanatory power. Um, you know, with the recent rise of anti-Asian hate crimes and conversations about things like model minorities, that is an absolutely racist and oppressive system, but it is of mm -hmm. a very different kind than uh, the kind of uh, discrimination that uh, people with black bodies go through. And so that's mm -hmm. why something like BIPOC uh, d 
does, you know, is trying to make a distinction and I'm not taking, making a value claim either way. I actually don't have much stake in the game and I wouldn't be proper for me to, but the impetus for doing something like that is to say, you know, that we sometimes need to focus on certain kinds of oppressions and not treat all oppression as equal. Uh, and I think that to a more extreme, that's what you get with uh, Sadia Hartman's quote, uh, where, you, where she talks about black bodies being uniquely uh, uh, defined in the system of Western imperialism as uh, as targets of uh, or as sites of accumulation and fungibility, mm -hmm. right? And that is, I think, uh, true. And I think, especially, you think about the, you know, okay, you'll the, have to break it down. So, accumulation of fungibility. Break it down for the for the dummies, which is me. Sure. So, I think what she's trying to highlight there is that. Uh, black bodies in the context of Western imperialism or first world imperialism to go back to Maoism is mm -hmm. transactional. It, they are, they are things, they are, they are treated as inhuman to a certain extent that they are things to be bought and sold, uh, mm -hmm. and Making to deals. be exploited. Right. So that's the accumulation yeah. is that like, you can just take black people and treat them as commodities. Uh, and that has very much been the history and continues to be the history of how black bodies are used. And mm -hmm. so, and the fungibility is the same way where they're, their, their value is basically, uh, you know, it's not the Kantian notion that every human life is inherently valuable and that the concept of, you know, by being a human being, you have dignity. Fun a fungibility mm -hmm. of a human being is that they have an exchange value, which is in Marxian terms would make it, make it a commodity. Mm -hmm. um, so, and as much as that is true, you know, for, uh, and yes, indigenous people uh, probably, you know, have it just as bad, but they're under different conditions. Right. right. Uh, genocide is a different racial condition than slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are both terrible. And it's not that they don't have a conversation with each other, but they actually manifest uh, in very different systems of control and exploitation. So I think mm -hmm. that's what's really trite is that, yes, we are. In, we can't just because I'm an Afro pessimist or someone might pur uh, purport to be one mm -hmm. does not mean that they don't have solidarity with indigenous people. They're just recognizing trying to explicate the ways that they are exploited differently and why those and need to be uh, yeah. undermined. That kind of seems like an extension to the idea of intersectionality, that the idea that you need to, uh, yeah, the, the idea that a blanket idea of oppression is not enough and you need to specifically focus on the individual ways in which people are oppressed in order to really find the root causes of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and also just kind of, and not, and, especially in minority communities and that are, again, in a lot of kind of liberal, especially Democratic Party pretensions to anti-racism are put into a big block and they're saying, we're going to do an anti-racism for, you know, all the colors of Benetton. Um, that's actually not how you, you have to address these issues. Uh, you need to address them with a level of specificity. And that level of specificity has been denied to these uh, oppressed communities for a long time. And so I think it is intellectually, politically forward thinking to start asserting that. Um, another in, uh, important figure that I think will get us, tie us into the figures of uh, the problems of the day is somebody mm -hmm. I've written a lot about uh, over the last 10 years, um, who was the Cameroonian philosopher, uh, Chile Mbembe, uh, mm -hmm. who was a very foundational uh, thinker to Afro-pessimism. And he developed a concept call, uh, called necropolitics. Mm. Uh, so again, not to go on a huge diatribe, but Michel Foucault, he came up with the idea uh, in uh, his first ver uh, volume of the history of sexuality of something called biopolitics. Mm -hmm. And it is the politics of regulating life. So it's uh, 
you, you know, he, one of his theories is that we went through it from a society of discipline to a society uh, of punishment to a society of discipline, right? So before it was like, you steal something, I cut off your hand. Mm-hmm. And now it's much more about creating these regulating structures, uh, including like mental health regimes, uh, psychiatric wards, prisons, yeah. different ways of categorizing it, even, uh, you know, census data, all this stuff that we have, which basically d- d- serves a similar function, but really is a way of regulating the processes of everyday life. Yeah, being observed is- constantly in order to regulate the, pre- like, not unlike the precogs from Minority Report. Yeah, or even what we talked about last time when I was here were things where it's like, oh, well, you know, how do we get children to sit in school for eight hours a day? Well, we have this drug, so this drug, we can chemically alter them. And so, and it is the, basically the regular error that we can be like, we need to get population control, you know, we need to get more people, you know, sex education to get population control under, or we need to get people fucking more because our population is not, you know, is dropping and those kinds of things. Uh, and that was a real part of a certain kind of leftist thinking. What Mbembe brings into it is basically that now, there is a whole other dimension, especially a racialized dimension, where it's not actually about regulating life. It's actually about regulating death. Hmm. Um, this can be seen in processes like, uh, you know, the extermination of the indigenous people and then the subsequent uh, setting up of the residential school system or the reserve system in the United States, um, which hmm. is not really about like, you know, cre- you know, about any kind of version of thriving or of, uh, of keeping some kind of stability. It's actually just a way of creating a a state of ex- a zone of a state of exception where basically human beings can be immiserated and not can be connected to the larger society. Uh, and Mbebe is not an Afro pessimist, so he sees this as something that's taking place that ha- that is taking place and has taken place in many different situations. Um, spoke a lot about uh, South uh, apartheid South Africa, and um, and one of his main points is of course uh, historical Palestine. Where, mm-hmm. you know, if you really look at the occupation of Gaza, for instance, uh, which the Israelis would deny their occupying, but that's a whole other story. Um, well, Gaza we'll get is into not, that. You know, we'll, it's, we'll get into that soon. Yeah, but oh, like, it's happening. that is it's a regulation right of death and misery, not a regulation yeah. of. And I think that's where a, a lot of the pessimism and the Afro-pessimism comes from, is that I mm-hmm. think they see the black uh, American population in particular as being in a in a situation of necropolitics, not in a situation of uh, biopolitics. Interesting. So basically, does this have anything to do with like the recurrent theme of social death? Like you said, the idea of isolating people uh, totally uh, and putting them at odds with society puts them in this state where they're essentially a living dead. They They don't participate in life as we know it, but rather in this sort of liminal state between death and life um, that, you know, is, is does that inform that idea of necropolitics? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think uh, I think an Afro pessimist would reject that um, because mm-hmm. in that quote you uh, mentioned last time, they say something along the lines of we are not we are our condition is different than the Marxist worker, the non-black queer yeah, person. The post-colonial um, subaltern, yeah, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and the post-colonial subaltern is very close to what you're talking about, uh, which I think mm-hmm. uh, Umbebe would very much uh, tie his uh, thoughts to. Uh, again, not to be a name dropper, but also I don't want to claim ideas that are on my own, but the post-colonial subaltern is an idea uh, from uh, Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak, uh, who part of what she's talking about is that, uh, which I also think the Afro-pessimists would disagree with, but what you're saying, this sort of social death, subalternity, mm-hmm. as she sees it, and as the subaltern movement generally sees it, is that 
um, basic, by being subaltern, you you are uh, by, you are inherently in, uh, inaccessible to the dominant group. Uh, you, mm. it, it is inaccessible to you, and you are inaccessible to it, uh, and that creates a kind of social death, uh, or what, or what that is the, the condition of subalternity. Subalternity, I mean, in most people, in mo especially the most famous uh, examples of it, though, basically, the, the, those theories basically say you have to learn to speak the language of your colonizer to defeat them, because you cannot mm -hmm. defeat them in your language because they will never hear you. Mm -hmm. ah. um, so I think well, that is what it, yeah, that, that inability to communicate, and we're seeing that more and more with how, again, uh, this situation in Palestine is being reported. Right, so subalternity is the perfect description for the Palestinians who are not accessible to the broader culture of Israel and who remain isolated and who, I mean, it, they're in an even lower situation than what they described, because even if they learn the language of their oppressors, they can't get anywhere in order to defeat them, which is, right. you know, that's, that's uh, I don't know. But uh, so for, for people, I'm sure everyone who listens to the show probably pays enough attention to the news to know that um, it's been the largest assault on Palestinian people since 2014. What was what was that one called at the time? Operation Flying Edge or Operation Cutting Edge? What, what oh, was God, it? I can't even remember what these fucking taglines anymore. They I, honestly, they just come up with them to impress the Americans. Yeah, but about two weeks ago, very violent evictions in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah started happening. Be, so Sheikh Jarrah is this Palestinian neighborhood uh, that borders the Israeli side of Jerusalem. And since uh, refugees, uh, re Palestinian refugees went in there after 1950, and they've remained there ever since. And just recently, uh, Jews, uh, I shouldn't say Israelis, uh, empowered by a lower court uh, ruling, started going into homes and violently evicting we should just say forced removal or evicting is not the word for it just essentially um muscling these people out with guns uh these people that had lived there for years and years and who families have any sort of you know families have claimed to that land as well they the israelis said no we had pre-1948 deeds to this land which is why we're using our guns to get you out so all sorts of property was destroyed uh, all sorts of Palestinians were evicted from their homes in uh, acts reminiscent of the Nakba, the original uh, mass uh, eviction and fleeing event that occurred that uh, was commemorated yesterday. And this has started uh, Palestine being huge in the news cycle again. And in response to that, uh, Israel has... Is, is carpet bombing Gaza again and killing children en masse. And it's a horrifying situation. So that's just yeah, a rundown I, of the last two weeks. Jay, do you have anything? I, I, have I gotten anything wrong? Uh, yeah, just a quick <laughs> correction on a, a couple yeah. things. One is that I would say it is uh, much more similar, much less similar to the, to the Nakba than it is to Kristallnacht. Um, mm. Because the Nakba was, for all intents and purposes, a military action. And this, and I think you're right to point out that this is not a process of eviction. This is a process of uh, citizen vigilante. Well, there's, it's, there's many prongs to this, but the so-called evictions are not, you know, a, a lawyer or a police officer showing up uh, with a deed and, you know, you got to go by this many days. Yeah. What it really is, is a series of, it's a bunch of basically assholes walking into people's homes and saying, and and uh, occupying them uh, in a very literal sense and saying, well, I live here now 
uh, with the understanding that uh, the IDF would come, uh, the Israeli Defense Force, the army, would come and defend their claim on that land. But it's not soldiers coming in and running out uh, the Palestinian population of uh, East Jerusalem. What it is is it's, uh, it's a vigilantism. Uh, mm. With the that is that is bolstered by the understanding that they c can rely on state violence to support yeah. their vigilantism. So it's much more like what happened to the Jews in Germany during Kristallnacht than it is mm -hmm. uh, to the actual uh, military displacement of the Nakba. Or to use a recent example, Kyle Rittenhouse, the the guy that shot two two of the protesters and knew that he could get away with it because he was backed up by the police. I mean, he's been charged. We'll see what happens with that. But I think it's a similar instinct. People do these acts of vigilantism because it's implied that the system has their back. Yes. And of course, there is the other, the, you know, I guess the caveat to what I said is there, there, are, there, are, there are very few Israelis who are not or have not been soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's also true. Yeah, because you see these guys, you see these Avis with Glocks who are just, you know, it looks like it looks like it's from Call of Duty or some shit. Uh, it, it really, to them, it does seem like a video game in a way. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's real hatred, you know, there. And there is, you know, a real, if you are, you know, of a certain generation of Jews, um, you were raised to basically believe uh, that your existential existence, no matter where you live in the world, is tied to Israel. Uh, and yeah. so, and especially after the many generations after the you know original settlers of that uh, that territory, um, this is you know basically anything can be justified because anything that yeah. does that in any way might question uh, their ultimate sovereignty as uh, Jews, uh, secular Jews, uh, Jews in a in a in a ethnic sense, not necessarily even a religious sense. Um, mm -hmm. has created uh, two or three generations in a real, some real psycho shit. Yeah, real. It's like, um, it's mm -hmm. like for them, uh, Israel is Oa and the Green Lantern battery is there. And if you destroy the Green Lantern battery, all the goodness and all the Jews got to come back to replenish their Green Lantern batteries. And if you don't, you become a little diaspora goblin, you know. <laughs> the, the, yeah, it's, and it's 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 pervasive on all, in every aspect of sort of Jewry as well because even very well-meaning anti-imperial leftists, uh, this is the thing that they always have the bad take on. Uh, mm -hmm. I saw something really embarrassing on Facebook uh, the other day, which I'm sure you'll find entertaining. Uh, mm -hmm. This guy I went to high school with, the most liberal guy in the world, you know, and you know, most le super lefty, super progressive, and his take on this was to write an incredibly long screed about how denying the indigeneity of the Israelis is actually uh, bad for the overall indigenous rights movement globally. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, the reason why they... we have to maintain... <laughs> oh, man. I mean... Yeah, so oh, like, ba boy. like basically the idea that Cree, you know, you know, uh, you know uh, trying to keep your land rights in Canada is undermined by saying that Israelis are not, Israelis are not indigenous to Palestine as, as though somehow that is in any uh, or relevant fact to what they're doing right now. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it also just seems like basically stupid because uh, the indigenous people lived in that land up until they got slaughtered by whites, whereas... 
the Jews left. <laughs> we left to go to Europe. We left to have our Rumspringa in Europe. Didn't work out. They didn't quite like us. I should mention now that me and Jay are both Jewish, so we can get away with this. Stephen, you're on your own. And I'm an eighth Jewish. So <laughs> I, yeah, that's So enough. I understand about one eighth of everything you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm an eighth Jewish because I smoke an eighth of weed. Yeah! Green screen is blocking up my weed. I think my <laughs> grandfather was fully Jewish. And so then because he was, if he had been a woman, then, um, you know, then maybe I would be more Jewish. But that's an interesting thing. What <laughs> happens when, uh, say my grandfather was trans. and. Okay. And then he transitioned. How does uh, how does that deal? How do you deal with that? I don't think the Orthodox Jews, um, the people with, who are serious about the matrilineal what, heritage wait, thing. Hold on, wait, wait, let me finish. <laughs> how do you deal with that? With the uh, the whole thing, you know, with the passing down of the Jewishness matrilineally, has that uh, been addressed? The, well, uh, <laughs> I could square that circle. Okay. Um, so first of all, the matrilinearity, um, I think a lot, I mean, especially because we're dealing with a fairly ancient uh, religion. Um, but so I think there's two ways you could go through it. One would be that uh, a trans woman would not be able to uh, transfer it because she would not be able to uh, give birth. And so mm -hmm. I think part of it, I think part of the belief there, and I think it depends on which, you know, sect of Judaism you're prescribing to, but... I think that it has less to do with the gender category than it does mm -hmm. to do with the process of being, you know, sharing a body with the Jew at a certain point. Yeah. So Jewishness is located in inside of the vagina. Yeah, it's a very much in a the, sacred in, passage <laughs> yeah, type yeah. of thing. It's a, the passage but, of the opposite. vagina. I'll give the reform Jew answer, which okay. is that they would be because... Uh, that trans woman was always trans, even if she had not fully understood her identity or transition. So she actually always was a woman. And therefore, so I think that's I think there's a conservative version and the reform version. I think they're both. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the uh, just don't just linearity as a concept in general is is a dumb concept. <laughs> so we can agree that that's why. Yeah, and the Israeli the government doesn't follow these rules either. The Israeli government is a secular government. Most of the citizens of Israel do not practice Judaism. They are not. They don't keep kosher. They do not go to shul every Saturday. There are. You will find more religious Jews in New York City than you will in Tel Aviv any day of the week. Yeah. Right. Well, I the saw most that popular tweet. sandwich. I saw that tweet that was saying Tel Aviv is the gay and lesbian capital of the Middle East as a reason why. The, uh, the Democrats need to defend Israel. Did you yeah. ever see that one? I hate that one so much because that's used to weaponize uh, gay people against uh, uh, Middle Eastern people, and they've been doing that since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Here's the truth. Here's what you don't hear, uh, is that every year during Tel Aviv Pride, uh, or at least many years during Tel Aviv Pride, there have been uh, religious Jewish terrorist attacks on the Pride Parade. Um, there have been bombs placed under floats. Uh, the threat has always been there. They've not always been successful. Um, but the um, the class, the the religious psychos that do exist in Israel, but are just not a majority, um, actually do commit violent terrorism on this uh, quote unquote bastion of LGBT rights. So th yeah. and those are also the people that are being protected uh, uh, in, with insane force uh, in their settlements out in the West Bank and the Golan Heights. But it, it's also just that moral calculus of, 
oh, they hate the gays, so we can rain white phosphorus on their right. children. Like, well, okay, so let's rain white phosphorus on Alabama. Let's do that. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> Why yeah. they, we have enough more? If they hit the gays so much, I guess we can kill their children. Yeah, I guess we could put Jason Kenny in the gulag. Yeah. Mm. Well. Well. Okay. <laughs> no. No. Stop this line of thinking. Uh, <laughs> so the I, I, let's just because uh, we're doing a, a world history and theory for dummies episode. Um, can we let, can we go through like just a little bit of like the the cliff's notes of Israel's history, like starting with uh, Herzl, starting with Buber and Herzl, and then moving on to the partitioning of Palestine. And then the six day, let's just cover. We're going to talk about uh, Israeli history. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Israeli history a little. Yeah. We're talking about, we're talking about Israeli history. We're talking about, uh, the Martin Buber and Theodore Herzl. Jay, what can you tell us about the founders of Zionism, Martin Buber and Theodore Herzl? Well, I don't. I think um, I think they're both very interesting Zionist thinkers. I also don't think they ever lived at the same period of time. Uh, hmm. So, I, I Martin Buber is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, so Herzl posited not ridiculously in the 19th century that the Jews would probably be better off with some kind of sovereignty and not being the sort of uh, heels of all of European society, uh, hmm. which is, I think, a reasonable uh, position to take. Uh, yeah. When you're the Jews and you've just been shit on for thousands of years. Yeah. And, you know, and he was, you know, anticipated the programs and the things that were going that did eventually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't always married to the idea of having it be in historical Palestine. Um, he had, you know, thought, you know, eyes on South America at certain points and certain parts of Africa at certain points, uh, which, you know, again, is participating in a kind of cliche historical colonialist mindset, which is like, these places are empty. We could just go there. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's nobody using uh, this. There's nobody using this. So, um, there is, you know, always some, uh, racially problematic uh, parts to Herzl, but he did eventually kind of land on historical Palestine for similar reasons uh, as that as well, where it's like, oh, it's 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 the Bible place, and there's not that many people there. Um, yeah. And it also wasn't clear that it was going to be as uh, colonialist as an entity. So then when we get to the 40s and 50s with someone like Martin Buber, um, who very much uh, supported uh, the he was always uh, supporting a binational state. Mm-hmm. Um, he, as someone who was also a religious thinker, kind of, I guess, the most famous Jewish existentialist, um, he, and, and, and a Hasid in a way that we don't talk about Hasids anymore, um, was really not interested in evangelizing, was not interested in uh, kind of warring with, uh, having uh, internecine wars between Arabs and uh, Hebrews or Muslims and Jews. Um, his version of Zionism was a much more utopian and much more uh, something that I think most of us would, pro- if it, that were to have ever taken place, uh, we would not be having the issues we're having now. So yeah, uh, Buber, Buber's vision for Israel, uh, you say, is, was a lot more peaceful than the version of Israel that we have now. Yeah, and his version of, you know, and his version, I mean, part, and, you know, Buber also had other things, because Buber did want people to be more religious, and there is an argument that if Jewish religiosity maybe became more of a part of the foundation of that state, 
then we wouldn't mm-hmm. have this weird divide between secular nationalists and extremely, extremely religious, also nationalists, uh, yeah. kind of being used as foot soldiers in the imperial operation. Yeah, because the religion became replaced with the state, you know, not unlike you're talking about Kristallnacht and maybe spicy comparisons to Nazi Germany, but that's very much what happened in Nazi Germany, where all religion was replaced with worship of the state. Um, Right. And so when you get to, and, and, you know, an oft, uh, something that a lot of Jews don't like to talk about, unless you're actually in Israel with Israeli Jews, is that um, so the Balfour Agreement was, uh, dis- so the British used to be in control of what was then called historical Palestine, uh, where Israel and the Palestinian territories now are. Uh, there was an agreement after the First World War to kind of basically set up, uh, kind of set up this still held British territory between Jews and Muslims. Uh, and actually a lot of, you know, uh, Ben Gurion, uh, who was uh, the first prime minister of Israel, uh, and a lot of people who were young uh, during his premiership and became later political leaders. Uh, part of the reason they were able to, uh, way they were able to get the British out was by committing violent acts of terror uh, and guerrilla uh, terror tactics uh, that they often condemned the Palestinians for using. Uh, that's how Israel got its independence. By mm-hmm. you know the most famous incident being uh, the uh, bombing of the uh, King David Hotel, uh, where a lot of British diplomats were staying, and um, so yeah, they were you know the the early uh, Zionists who had found the state of Israel were very much keen to use uh, anti-imperial revolutionary uh, violence to get their sovereign state. Oh, like Hamas? Are you saying you saying they're a little like Hamas? You saying? Uh, maybe closer to the PLO, but like, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we like Arafat. <laughs> Arafats. Arafat all the way. We're big Arafat fans here. Yes. Arafat yeah. fan. Yeah. Uh, um, I, so, yeah. So, and then, I'm just trying, again, you wanted the Coles notes. Well, uh, we're um, doing the Coles notes, the, the Bridges notes. Okay, so we, we got the Balfour Agreement. We got the Jews. We got Ben-Gurion and the Israelis doing radical terror against the Britons in order to gain some semblance of sovereignty. Uh, is there more between that and the partition of Palestine in 1948? Is just like the increasing Jewish settlement in that time? Was that was that a thing? Yes. Yeah, so what kind of in between the period between 48 and 67... Um, it, listen, it is also not going to be said that the neighboring uh, Arab countries were particularly thrilled about uh, the uh, creation of the state of Israel. So there was definitely uh, between Syria, Jordan, uh, and Egypt specifically, um, there was increased tensions uh, between, because even, you know, the uh, two, yeah, so that's that created the series of conflicts which led to the 67 war, which mm-hmm. uh, created the kind of current partition that since, you know, at least the Oslo Agreement has kind of been this, the quote-unquote basis for any yeah. two-state solution. So, yeah, the the important dates would be 1948, which is when the official partitioning of, of Palestine happened after World War II, and that's when the Nakba happened, which was the right. large expulsion of Palestinian uh, people who had been on that land for thousands of years. Uh, and then just that encroaching led to 1967, the Six Days War. What happened in the Six Days War? 
Um, well, the Six Days War, um, the Israelis were, and uh, you know, just a little context. You know, we uh, we I think it's absolutely fair to call Israel a client state of America right now. But in this uh, early Cold War period, that was definitely not the case. Uh, for most of the reading I've done, it was actually the French uh, that were the greatest supplier of weapons uh, in these situations. Uh, and mm. so they were really, and and frankly, the Soviet Union. Uh, so the Six Days War was basically, you know, the Arab, uh, the surrounding Arab states kind of had a coordinated uh, effort to in invade Israel and basically try to get rid of it. Um, the Israelis, you know, if you're someone who's into military history, uh, were actually, well, I mean, the Egyptians were also like fucked up real bad. But basically, that's like sort of the great heroic moment for the Israeli military. They were this small plucky force against these uh, historically, uh, you know, enemy states. And that even though they were against all odds, they were able to push back the invaders. And also uh, by doing so, they were also able to actually take more territory. Uh, so they were able to take some of Egypt's territory uh, and then uh, the territory that we now know as, say, the Golan Heights was also uh, annexed from Syria in that war. And that's and that's when, um, you know, the the really hard uh, I mean, there always was a hard border, but like it really became uh, the current version of the Israeli military state and the way that they um, policed the Palestinians uh, was established after that war. Yeah. So that the Six Days War would never happen again. We have to do this. We have to have an open air prison and a land with no sovereignty that's somewhat less like an open air prison, but still pretty would, much there. I would like to uh, wait for the use of the term open air prison till the uh, till the Gaza thing that happens in 2005, because I do think that there is a real shift in towards uh, what. Like I do think Gaza, the Gaza situation is incredibly different than the West Bank situation, and that is a that is a twentieth first century phenomenon, not a twentieth century phenomenon. So mm -hmm. there, it is an apartheid. It is the it is the official, I would say, uh, resolution of the apartheid state. When did they stop yeah. letting them leave? That's my. Was that two thousand five or is that earlier? Um, there was their travel back and forth has always been policed, and like as in all, uh, very in very similar ways to the apartheid system in South Africa, um, uh, which is why the apartheid, uh, the anti-apartheid movement uh, in Southern Africa was very anti-Israel, uh, mm -hmm. and kind of remains anti-Israel. Uh, but yeah, so there was the actual like the fact that Gaza has become like the Gaza can't leave like you technically somebody from the West Bank, it would be incredibly difficult and fucked up but they could get into greater israel to work or be somebody's housekeeper or something like that could happen that will not happen for a gaza in the current situation and that happened started to happen in 2005. Mm -hmm. but it's so, uh, you know, this is a good time to bring up that there are different levels you know as in south african apartheid not all arabs are uh and palestinians are treated the same so there are arab uh israeli citizens who have voting rights, they technically under the Supreme Court, uh, and this has been often uh, uh, supported by this courts, uh, basically have the same rights, uh, or at least have second class citizen rights. Uh, the Palestinians in the uh, occupied West Bank do not have those rights. And the uh, Palestinians in Gaza uh, very, very much don't have those rights. That's relevant yeah. because the, there is a, another exception, which is that the Palestinians in East Jerusalem are not Arab Israeli citizens. They are in a weird liminal state between the two. So that's another reason why a lot of these quote unquote evictions are being allowed. They could not do this 
in their own legal constitutional framework. Like the mm. courts would not uphold this if they did this in a uh, a, a neighborhood of uh, Arab Israelis citizens in Tel Aviv. The reason mm -hmm. they're able to do it within their own legal system is because they uh, the East Jerusalem Arabs uh, do not have citizen status. Mm. So they're just using, uh, in the same way that they've always used, just obscure legalism in order to justify violence. Just yes, the idea that we say these magic words, as 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 Eddie Izzard would say, we put a flag here, and it's ours now. We beat them using... with a cunning use of flags. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah I think it, it is very... pretty much just that. And there is a veneer of liberalism to uh, Israeli society. You know, it does. The courts are have often not sided, uh, especially with Likudniks, uh, and have gotten in their way. I mean, just the very fact that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is very likely to go to jail at some point, like every other Israeli prime minister in living memory, uh, it kind of shows that the courts are at least uh, not fully handmaidens to uh, the federal government. Hmm. So that would be an interesting. There's been some talk that this uh, recent violence is um, a ploy by Netanyahu to stay in office. Do you think that holds yes. water? A hundred percent, because that's also been true of every other time this has happened, any time he, uh, he's been in power. Uh, when you go back to the last one uh, in 2014 was actually in a similar situation where there were a, a series of elections that did not that went awry and uh, it became uh, well, it's twofold. I think there is one where it does. So, yes, there is the no matter what most the vast majority of Israelis are going to get behind violence against Palestinians. So if you're losing popularity, you still go the ultimate existential cause will always supersede any political uh, situation, which is really been detrimental to Israeli society because they always end up voting, even the people have terrible policies that frankly they don't agree with, they end up voting for the ones who are gonna be the most hawkish, mm -hmm. uh, which has really been Likud's uh, advantage. And what's happening now is slightly different, uh, perhaps we'll see, because this is probably the greatest political turmoil Israel has ever faced in that they have, the, like the actual government is completely non-functioning right now. Uh, they have not, but they've had like four elections. I think they're trying to get to 18 for some, because that's a lucky number in Judaism. Uh, the Knesset it, is a Knesset, you're saying. It's a Knesset. And so I yeah. think on one level, it's uh, Netanyahu trying to contain power. But on another level, I think it's the greater apparatus of the uh, Israeli state asserting that, okay, even if a, one wing is not functioning, we this other, this greater mission will still always function, despite the fact that we have no function, haven't had a functional government in years. Mm -hmm. huh. That sort of reminds me of like the what I think the ultimate reason for the Iraq war was. It's something similar, which was the Pentagon saying we we function after after mm -hmm. um, uh, 9-11. It wasn't really about oil. It wasn't necessarily about an imperial la land grab. It was just a, the the military industrial complex um, wanting to insert itself into history once again. Yeah, just theater of violence. Yeah, and th that's, I think that that's probably the most correct answer. You know, in the 90s, uh, Colin Powell often opined about how there's no, you know, there's, listen, instant, no institution is going to, uh, especially powerful institution, is going to defang itself. Uh, and with the loss of the Soviet Union, you know, Colin Powell argued, you know, we don't have any great enemies. And I don't think it's a uh, mistake that uh, Muslims, 
uh, Arabs specifically, but Muslims largely, uh, replaced the big boogeyman of the, you know, of the Red Ruski for, as the great evil that justifies uh, American imperial ventures, especially because the American military is such a huge part of the American economy. Yeah, got to keep it going. Got to find any justification to keep it going. So you got to create this illusion that you're under this existential threat constantly. Yeah. I mean, that's what Israel's all about. The illusion that we're constantly under an existential threat. That's why we needed Israel in the first place, because we're in, a, in an existential threat. That's why we need all the bombs and the guns and the armors and all the preemptive strikes, because we're constantly under existential threat. It's this sort of learned paranoia that, you know... Uh, I think you can only get really from being specifically in Jewish culture when you're every from from the time you're very little, you're taken to Pesach and told, here's all the times they tried to murder us. <laughs> well, yeah, there's this, you know, I think, uh, you know, uh, Alex had a boss once that we went over to his place for dinner once. I, I think it was a holiday party. And I think and he, you know, and he was, you know, understands that I do a lot of uh anti-racist research and he was like ah you know the thing is is if you're ever dealing with a black guy you should just be like hey we were slaves too and i was like yeah they, you know but they could probably trace it three generations i couldn't you know <laughs> ours was probably never happened and was at least six thousand years ago so it's like yeah not gonna do i'm probably not gonna do that but i appreciate yeah. the advice um, is the, uh, the historical equivalency. But that's, you know, the, the relationship between Jewish people and black people, that's, the, uh, that's what the movie Uncut Gems is all about. Or, and it's also what the movie Straight Outta Compton is all about. <laughs> it's what a lot of movies are about. You know, they've even got a couple of good Sopranos episodes about it. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a fraught history there. You guys all control I, the movies, so. <laughs> well, that's part of, you know, in Israel, Jews control the media. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I bet that's stupid. Uh, um, so a so, couple other maybe historical events or moments worth kind of talking about how we got here. Um, I, I think a huge one, um, because Israel until the 80s, late 70s, was also a very much a socialist project. Um, mm -hmm. they, were, uh, a they were very much like overtly socialistic. Uh, they had many socialistic uh, policies. They were definitely would have been within a uh, third worldist mentality uh, and which is why they had a lot of support from the Russians in some way, shape or form in the beginning of their lives. A lot of that starts to change with the demographic shift that came, frankly, how my family got out of the Soviet Union was when Golda Meir got elected uh, prime minister. Uh, she, uh, Golda Meir was a, uh, a Californian Jew who made Aliyah in the 40s to Israel. Uh, and so she, a lot of her success was with her, uh, you know, uh, was very much uh, in her ability to negotiate in uh, English and Hebrew and I believe Russian. Uh, and but so tragically, what, unlike Aliyah, she didn't die in the plane crash over she there. She did not die in the plane crash. <laughs> um, but so what she negotiated, um, I believe it was with Khrushchev, to basically let the uh, Eastern European Jewry leave the Soviet Union and uh, immigrate to Israel. Um, so this ended up happening. And so, but this is a group of people that, you know, had not really been, by and large, uh, deeply connected to their Jewish identity in a deeper cultural sense, like not in the way that, say, the American Zionist movement that uh, brought someone like Golda Meir to make that movement. This was more like, well, we're getting discriminated against here, so we're going to go over there. And they're, you know, we're socialists, they're socialists. Bob's your uncle. 
Uh, so mm -hmm. that created a huge democratic shift, uh, a demographic shift in uh, the population of Israel. Uh, and uh, kind of generally uh, more authoritarian because they came from a highly authoritarian society. Uh, and the other side is that, you know, the, the, the Russians, at, you know, they also used it as an opportunity to, you know, clear out some of their prisons. So there is a reason. <laughs> There's a lot of Jews in Israel who are not who were not who would not be considered, you know, quote unquote Jews, uh, and that's why the ties to the Israeli mob and the Russian mob, uh, you know, you'll see figures like, oh, the Israeli mob actually exports the most amount of uh, MDMA in the world, and the Russian mob exports the second amount. I'm like, it's the same mob. It's the Russian mm -hmm. mafiosos that were sent out of Russia into Israel and were given kind of new purchase. So that huge demographic shift, I think, is in the 70s is when you start to kind of the uh, the authoritarian streak really gets a voting base in the country uh, speaking that really reminds me of like speaking of jewish gangsters it's like how meyer lansky and lucky luciano set up in cuba uh mm -hmm. after uh, uh before batista before there was a real communist revolution obviously it happened backwards there have you been listening but, to uh, blowback i've been listening to blowback <laughs> i've been listening to some blowback it's real good I recommend yeah. it. Oh, man, I wish I, I didn't look up what Noah Colwyn looks like because he sounds hot and he's not. Ooh. Oh, no, he's, I'd do him. I'd, I, I would. Mean, I wouldn't throw him out of bed, it, no, but he like, it, sounds No, he's hot. got good base features. It's just his haircut. He just chooses to look like that. He could be hot. He just doesn't look smacks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A term I have gained from the incels. Uh, um, so I see what you mean. I see what you mean. <laughs> No, there's a picture of him where he's hot, though. I don't know. Maybe I can hold it up there. This here, look. Yeah, no, he's definitely hot. He just, he chooses, just chooses to look like a yeah, he chooses to look to, like a, a Russian peasant. You shouldn't that. I have that beard type kind of, and you just shouldn't. There's no reason to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the '80s. Gold of my ear. Uh, f conversely, you'd think bringing all these Russian people, the Soviet people, would make the country more communist. But in sort of this reverse thing, it made it more capital or amenable to capitalism in a way. Well, it was more amenable to authoritarianism, and I don't. Th I also think that Russians in the seventies were not as. Um, I, 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 in the 70s and eighties, living in in Russia, I don't. I don't think it was like, ah, oh, yes, this is the great world historical project that we are all participating in. I think it became very yeah. clear that things were starting to fray at the edges. Uh, yeah. But there's also, you know, a saying, you know, the I think a not correct, but a, a, a oft believed saying about, you know, why it is, is Putin so wildly popular is that Russians like a strong man. Nah. Um, so in the late 80s, early 90s, um, God, I get all these Israeli prime minister's names uh, mixed up in my head. I believe it was Perez, but I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there Shimon. was a movement. <laughs> there was Shimon a uh, Perez movement for <laughs> um, there, the elected government of Israel uh, was starting to make uh, moves towards peace uh, mm -hmm. and reconciliation. And this is when uh, this is when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, really starts to become a major, major political figure uh, in this in the Israeli scene. Uh, I believe he becomes the leader of Likud. I think he lost uh, he lost his election to uh, the first election. And uh, actually, uh, the, the, you know, led a movement of uh, right-wing extremist Israelis to basically uh, revolt against the idea of any kind of peace. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he is often, you know, I don't know how much responsibility you want to ascribe to him, but he was definitely the rhetorical base uh, of the inspiration of the people who ultimately assassinated the prime minister that was trying to negotiate peace. Yeah. Uh, subsequently, that was the first, uh, I believe, immediately after in the next election was when uh, was Netanyahu's first term as prime minister of Israel uh, and the rise of the Likudniks as a viable parliamentary leadership party. And the Likudniks are the far right, well, not, yeah, far right, you could describe, far right nationalist, state nationalist They are group. a far right nationalist. They are not the most far right nationalist. So Israel has also never had a majority government in the entirety of its existence. It has always been a coalition of varying parties, some uh, until about the 2000s when the social, uh, the early 2000s when the, the any kind of left leaning, even though they were also imperialist governments kind of ne- lost all political standing. Um, but it was, uh, so yes, it was, Likud was in power, but they were in a coalition with frankly, people much worse than them bolstering them, mm. uh, which, and I think they only lasted one term, uh, and the rise of the Likudniks really happens closer, uh, to the two thousands, uh, because it was the sort of more lefty governments that lead us into the late nineties, uh, into the Oslo Accords, mm-hmm. uh, which is the actual, the, the ostensible, uh, peace agreement, uh, the beginning of a legal framework. Uh, Camp David is often talked about this. They got to all take the Jeffrey yeah. Epstein plane to go hang out with Bill Clinton. Yeah, they all won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. As we were talking about our boy Arafat earlier, you know, that that was a big deal. That was sort of his, the final, the, the denouement of his years of diplomacy was these Oslo Accords, right? Right. And, you know, I was it's, I've been I was browsing through uh, Edward Said's The Question of Palestine, which was written in the 70s, but amended in the 90s. Uh, and just kind of looking at some of those notes. And, you know, I think even he would agree that, you know, if these if Oslo happened 10 years earlier, it probably would have been better for the Palestinians in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they probably would have gotten a better deal. Uh, but basically, Oslo, without going into too many details, is basically the Israelis got everything they want and the Palestinians got nothing. Uh, even the concessions they were given, uh, the idea that these would all be based off, based off 67 borders, uh, but, uh, you know, some reasonable, equitable land swaps to, for its, uh, in, instances of a contiguity uh, could be negotiated. Of course, I.e. Uh, connecting Gaza to West Bank. Right. And also keeping and, you know, in the Israeli interest, you know, if they just went down the 67 borders, they would also lose some of the contiguity in their neighborhood. So. That was the good faith explanation of what happened. Of course, the contiguity of, of Palestine is directly against the Israelis' uh, ultimate goal of taking over the entire uh, territory. And so they have never actually uh, conceded to those parts of Oslo. I, I, I think, okay, so there's the Oslo Accords, um, and then we get to... 2005, essentially, which is when you said that Gaza becomes the open air prison that we know today. <laughs> you know, he didn't say, Jay didn't, Jay said, wait on using that. No, I think yeah. that's a, a till that's now. The, it's the oh, beginning. Till this now. is when we wait. Oh, I thought yeah. you meant wait until 2014. <laughs> no, uh, 2014 is, is definitely the exploitation of it becoming, because that's when, that's the most death that has been visited upon the Palestinians so far is okay. the 2014 raids, okay. right? Right. So, uh, so what happened in 2005. 2005? So, so Oslo is you know around this period of time too is sort of the rise of Hamas. Uh, Hamas was is, is, a, is a 
you know, PLO is not an, an unreligious organization, but it is very much a nationalist revolutionary organization, or uh, at least under Arafat. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hamas is, is much more of a uh, jihadist, uh, extremist Muslim group. Yeah. And they actually, you know, a lot of the reason Hamas was able to gain uh, any kind of political power, political purchase was because the Israelis and their secret services actually very much um, supported them financially and with weapons uh, and, you know, just the way that you support insurgent groups because they would destabilize the power regime of Fatah, uh, okay. which was the... So actually Hamas is much like um, the Taliban uh, and... Uh, um, Al-Qaeda were really, you know, things that were created with the help of the USA to destabilize uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, it didn't work out that well for them. That's kind of what Israel has done. Uh, so that's kind of how Hamas comes to rise. Um, and so that's, you know, worth noting that there's like, oh, these terrible people. I'm like, oh, these terrible people that would not have any political power now if you had not given it to them. Or, yeah, um, or even, like, the North Vietnamese. Didn't we train Ho Chi Minh? Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, it's all, it always happens The like Prime that. Minister at the time of 2005 is uh, Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon is uh, one of the biggest bastards uh, in the story uh, of Israel. Uh, he was a general. Uh, he was a huge hawk. Um, mm -hmm. But he... Uh, I thought, I thought know, Ariel Sharon was a mermaid. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but he's one of those mermaids that's a fish on top and a man on the bottom. <laughs> Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you say my collection's complete? But I want it all. I feel fine. I want everything in Palestine. Yeah, that's Ariel uh, Sharon. Is that a Disney uh, song? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah you're a part of the world. Kicking you off the I, show. He would like a part of their world, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm Ethel Merman, just oh. like Ariel Sharon. Another name for Ariel Sharon is Ethel Merman. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. Um. Yeah. So the thing about Sharon is, I, and the reason I brought up Oslo earlier, even though it's extremely relevant, is that Sharon it was not the guy anybody would have assumed was going to be the one who would have uh, given back territory. That was not his reputation. That was not what he was elected to do. Um, but because of international pressure, because of the Oslo Agreement, uh, and because the way that Oslo also denuded the PLO uh, and kind of brought them under the heel of the Americans and Israelis as part of this greater project, you know, basically became, making Fatah much more uh, involved in the policing of their own people against resistance. Uh, mm -hmm they were kind of, they were like, okay, well, we're, we're going to keep doing that, right? We're basically going to have a colonial client state that, you know, we can have, that is going to be less violent and we kind of do a more technocratic post-Cold War annexation of this territory. Uh, it went terribly wrong. Um, <laughs> but what they couldn't have understood was that. <laughs> right. Uh, and so they, what ended up happening was that uh, actually not unlike Egypt uh, after the color revolutions and the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, it was, you know, I think nobody expected Hamas to come uh, to win such a huge majority in those elections that they held in Gaza. Uh, just in the same way nobody expected the Muslim Brotherhood to, but also, you know, it doesn't, it's actually not surprising because in a society where no political organizing was allowed to happen and was frankly uh, 
squashed both by the external colonial power and by uh, groups like the PLO and Fatah, uh, they, it's not surprising that the only politically organized group came to political power in the first situation, the first election they were allowed to hold. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how Hamas came to power. And the Americans and the Israelis were like, because the whole thing was like, we're letting Gaza, we're, we're going to remove every Israeli citizen, we're going to remove all the soldiers, and we're going to let them have free and fair elections and autonomy. Um, of course, once they elect, they, if they elected anybody that was not their chosen representative, then they, then they don't deserve that democracy anymore. And mm -hmm. that has become, they were like, well, they elected terrorists, so we don't actually have to keep any of our promises. Mm -hmm. um, and that's become a lot and a lot of the uh, kind of the impetus for what they're doing. But they will still say, you know, so it's true that under Ariel Sharon and there are people who actually still will talk shit about him, even though he's a quote unquote great war hero. Uh, he became uh, he removed the Jews from Gaza. What he didn't do was uh, give them any kind of autonomy. So uh, all the borders are uh, policed by Egypt uh, and Israel, uh, because Gaza uh, was a territory that was annexed during uh, the 67 war um, from Egypt. Uh, so Egypt is very culpable in this as well. Uh, but th that being said, more supplies do come through the Egyptian border than they do through the Israeli. Uh, and they're heavily, uh, and the, so their electricity supplies are heavily uh, are controlled by the Israeli government. They're building materials, fuel, water, sanitation, uh, so there is technically a, a government, quote unquote, government there. They just don't get to control any of those things that governments do. So the Israelis claim it is not an occupation because there are no Israelis in Gaza, even though they control every resource border uh, and anything uh, that might stop their ultimate immiseration. And this is why, why the language of open air prison has kind of entered the discourse on Israel-Palestine, because say what you will about the West Bank, uh, and it's decreasingly the case, but especially in 2005, um, the, there was much more of a possibility of a functioning, some kind of functioning civil society there, uh, even if it is an occupied apartheid one. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas uh, Gaza was very much not that, and they were, uh, uh, they were isolated in a way that the West Bank was not. Uh, they were immiserated in a way that the West Bank was not, and they became, uh, it became much easier to have things that look like outright wars uh, than mm -hmm. it would be in uh, the West Bank, where a lot of what's happening in West Bank and Golan Heights, it has to do with settlements and kind of small uh, uh, parts of the IDF kind of defending these quote-unquote yeah. illegally, even under Israeli law, settlements of these religious extremists moving encroaching further into the territory. But that situation is a lot closer to the vigilantism we're seeing in Jerusalem right now than anything that is going on uh, in Gaza in general, which is yeah, why in Gaza this current is just situation... Yeah, it's a siege uh, constantly. Yeah, and Gaza is the place where they will put soldiers on the ground. They'll airstrike the West Bank, uh, and I'm sure they'll put soldiers on the ground eventually, but earlier this week... Uh, like that's where they'll like deploy and like really just shock and awe. They'll do that in Gaza long before they'll do that in the West Bank because frankly they don't want to settle there. Yeah, they don't want to destroy the West Bank because they want to move Jews into there. I don't think they're particularly care what goes on in Gaza. So 2005, 2014 is the last time one of these flared up. And by these we mean, as as Stephen alluded to before. Uh, 
Netanyahu wants to distract people, and he's going, look over there, and killing a bunch of people in order to do it. And the last time that happened was 2014. Um, but it's like after 2014, nothing really significant happened as a result of it, just except for it ended and there was a lot of bloodshed. Like, uh, did so I think we can just go to today and why we think this recent flare up, uh, why this, this has a different quality than some of the other ones in that we've seen a lot more penetration of the mainstream of Palestine where before um, it had been largely shielded for most people in the West just due to a very uh, persistent propaganda campaign by all media networks that are complicit in it because we have a material interest in the preservation of Israel. I think 2014, a was, a, 2014 was a sea change in terms of um, uh, revolutionary or violent events reaching the masses 2014 was when the ukrainian revolution occurred and that yeah i feel like we got we all started getting smartphones in 2007 and yeah. people across on the other side of the world didn't all start getting them right then but yeah. by 2014 they sure did yeah and you could also compare it to the arab spring or even the uh, the the recent spate of highly publicized police killings that have occurred and that have ultimately raised consciousness in the mainstream about these issues. But something, I mean, the, the surest sign that there's been some sort of acknowledgement that there wasn't before is the, the large video game company IGN did a pro-Palestine post, reaching many, many gamers, and, and GameSpot as well, did a huge Palestine, pro-Palestine thing on their front page. And I have never seen any sort of quote-unquote normie website do that sort of thing. And I, it might just because be because these websites have editors that have the independent editing power to do something like that. But there's a real, especially amongst Zoomers, I've noticed, uh, American, American Zoomers and American Zoomer Jews, there's this real anti-Zionist thread that didn't seem to exist before. And I wonder if any of us had any do is the reason just because there's more footage than ever or do you think there's uh social media the the sort of equalizing nature of news on social media has created this greater awareness of palestine um i kind of i i think i think it's kind of all of those things but also none of them um mm -hmm. i think that the North American Jewry, uh, which is the largest population of Jews really in the world. There's more Jews in North America than there are in Israel. Um, there's more Jews in New York City and Toronto than there are in Israel, um, mm -hmm. combined rather, uh, or Montreal and New York City. I guess those are technically physically closer. Uh, so I think as you know, my family uh, kind of got to uh, North America through the uh, golden my ear period and as you know refugees into Israel and that that became their it began their immigration process to Canada and I think and so I think even my very non-religious family has a certain you know there is a to my mother who was an immigrant but to her parents who brought her uh, uh, there is this kind of like well they saved us and there's a tr there is truth to that you know that you know the reason they weren't there in the fucking dissolution and the misery of the 90s in Russia was because of the, the existence of the state of Israel and the political actions of those involved. I think once mm -hmm. you get generations out of that uh, and that population becomes in increasingly less religious, uh, 
I think it becomes, you know, it's just, be, it becomes less of a uh, shibboleth for younger generations uh, that they have to spout this. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it. Uh, so I just think that they're less indoctrinated and not out of any kind of effort out of just the fact that people kind of, a lot of these, like, I think my family still to this day is shocked at how anti-Israel I am because they were like, well, no, we indoctrinated you this way. I'm like, no, you didn't really do it. You, you believed it. And then you didn't really try that hard to indoctrinate me. So it was very easy to, for me to not be indoctrinated. And I think that's increasingly yeah. true. I think I would agree. I think there's this sort of this, this individualist tendency in North America towards laziness and defiance yeah. is sort of has made us more peaceful in a way. <laughs> this like, I don't want to go to synagogue. That's boring. But that weird, that weird laziness allows you this clarity of mind. It says, wait, we're killing people. We don't have to kill people. We can just watch Netflix, dude. Why do we? <laughs> Well, but also the political reality on the ground is very different. So, you know, for one thing, you know, there was you it was not always true. But now that, you know, Israel, you know, and Israel has tacitly for a very long time had uh, diplomatic arrangements with the Saudis, but they, you know, have really just put it out on paper now. And so, you know, the whole argument that, you know, we are beleaguered, covered on all by, on all sides. And that might have been true during, you know, uh, the Nasser days. Uh, which definitely became less true when Sadat took over. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the normalization with their neighbors, you know, the sort of existential threat narrative that they were selling became increasingly implausible to anybody with even the barest amount of scrutiny. And mm -hmm. so in the last 20 years, uh, the last 10 in particular, Israel has become much more bald-facedly imperialistic, not out of, I think, strategy, out of the fact that they don't have another choice. They have... They don't, there is no exit. The Palestinians are not an existential threat to the Israelis. They, the Palestinians have no ca capacity to commit any kind of major revolutionary warfare that would be effective uh, in this situation. And they also don't have allies in the region. Uh, like the fact that, the, that really the only allies the uh, Palestinians have in the greater Middle East are actually in the Shiite powers, uh, which, is not, uh, which is not what you would expect out of a right. largely Sunni population. Uh, so I think that a lot of the stuff is just becoming more naked. And I think to people who, uh, so, and so when somebody says, oh, we need to protect ourselves, I'm like, against who? The Egyptians who are your allies, the Saudis who are your allies, the Syrians who are your allies, the Jordanians who are your allies, or this- The Emirates who are your allies, the Bahrainis who are your allies. The, yeah. yeah, so it doesn't make any real goddamn sense. And the only, and I, th and you know, and I think, you know, as we're becoming less and less, you know, finding, you know, the kind of, it, it worked for a while in the early 2010s that we're like, well, the Iranians support the Palestinians. So the Palestinians are an Iranian client state um, is not. Uh, uh, that's also holding less and less purchase as the idea of Iran as this kind yeah. of crazy boogeyman. Uh, yeah, we killed an Iranian general and then nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, and listen, they I don't think the Iranian regime is fucking awful. But the idea that there are these religious psychos kind of just working off of like some weird interpretation of the Quran, I'm like, no, they're a political entity with political self-interest that acts in yeah. it. Or uh, that they provide any military check to the power of the United States is just completely stupid. Yeah, and so I think part of it is that they've just gotten a lot of the uh, Israeli propaganda has gotten lazy. Uh, they have they've been working on the same with the same story for thirty years, and like when you tell the same story, it's the boy who cried wolf. It just doesn't work in this uh, current situation, um, mm. especially when uh, in the context of as Stephen said, you know, the greater uh, ability to just see this shit because people, you know, 
like you know 15 years ago you're right it would the smashing of the like stores and house fronts that the crystal knock like behavior going on in east jerusalem would probably not be recorded uh in very high quality and disseminated uh in the same way and it's very hard to look at that and say that for anybody to look at that in any circumstance and say that that's an act of self-defense in a place where you are a racial and military majority yeah it just it's the footage just paints such an obvious picture that I, yeah, and I think anyone who you don't even have to know about the situation. I mean, people balked at people on the internet for comparing it to Star Wars, but it really is just like the opening scene of A New Hope, where you see this tiny little ship, and then coming from the background, ooh, this immense war machine no, that see, cannot be fathomed. The, the Israelis are like Luke and Leia, and the Palestinians. <laughs> are like the the Death Star. They got a Death Star. They got all this stuff. And they're yeah, trying... they're the Sith. Yeah. They have Sith powers. Yeah. Um, you don't understand. Uh, uh, Darth Yasser, the tragedy of Darth Yasser Plagueis, right. the wise. Well, well, that's kind of what they're asking us in, in the West to believe still. when it, And that's that may be the dissonance, you know, that we're talking about. That it's, no, you, the Israelis are not the rebellion in star wars they're they're the the big empire they got that an iron dome <laughs> like <laughs> well yeah and it, it's become and their arguments are becoming less and less coherent right so there is because there are basically there are three different things going on right now that are being treated as one scenario and they're definitely interconnected um but first of all there's the expulsions in east jerusalem right and uh and that's being treated and so the media, the mainstream media narrative you're getting right now is saying something is, you know, there's like, oh, there, there's this happening and we're going to underreport it. And then we're going to what we are reporting is that Gaza is firing rockets into Israel. Now, the way that that, of course, I think anybody who knows even a little bit of the story has been following the news, say, for two weeks would be able to see that the Gaza strikes, whether or not you believe, think that they have the right to use military violence in that way, uh, I think it's pretty clear what my position is on that, is clearly a retaliation for anti-Palestinian violence taking place on behalf of the Israeli state, right? But mm -hmm. the way that it's being reported here is that, no, no, these crazy jihadis just decided to start bombing as if they were not instigated in a, pro and frankly, a decade-long uh, military conflict that's been going on between the, because we're hearing about this now, but there have been these kind of evictions have been going on the whole time. These kinds of sieges into Gaza have been going on this whole time. It just hasn't always escalated into all-out war, and we're not getting it reported. So the Israeli thing is, we, you know, and the thing that Joe Biden said a couple of days ago is that, like, Israel has a right to defend itself. But there, this was not an unprovoked act of terrorism. This is a retaliation for military action done against Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, if Israel so has a right to defend itself, so does Palestine. Exactly. So that's, uh, you know, that is purposefully uh, obfuscated. And then, of course, the uh, immense imbalance of power uh, and the fact that, yes, Gaza sent out, you know, the fact that th th these kinds of people think it's abhorrent that these people are allowed to have any uh, weapons of war whatsoever. Uh, and that these yeah, really they're Muslims and they might use it for the wrong thing. Right. So I think that's a huge part. And I think th that contradiction is actually quite clear to people uh, now, at least people who are willing to see it. 
And so, yeah. you know, the and just and just the terrible way that reporting goes da down in these hyper ideological corporate papers, they're not as good at doing they're not as good at lying as they were in 2002 to try mm -hmm. to manufacture consent. Yeah, yeah. I've so, noticed that the New York yeah. Times has been pretty terrible about this. I don't know if you've been reading in the New York Times and it is not a good place to get information about what is actually happening. They have not provided an explanation on why Palestinians are upset at all. And it's stunning, really, because I was I was like, okay, I want to try to New York Times is generally pretty good. I'm going to try to figure out why the Palestinians are upset. They don't they don't talk about why the Palestinians are upset. I, I can't find no, because it. They're a wholly owned subsidiary of, of finance and capital. Uh, so, and of course, and that's, uh, their interests are don't lie with anything like justice or truth telling. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think the other thing, uh, to, about the sea change in public opinion, and I think we are going to see, I, I think, I think the Israelis know it's happening. And so I think that's another thing is that they, the Israelis don't have another 30 years of blanket political support amongst all parties in the United States. That is off. That is not probably going to last another generation, which means that they need to go whole hog now because they're not going to be able to take that. If they had a 50 year plan, it now must become a 15 year plan, which means it's going to be yeah. far more brutal and uh, and more noticeable than it was, yeah. because the second they lose even a modicum of political power, all of their political power comes from being a client state of the United States. This demographic shift does not bode well for them, which means they have to go full hog imperialism. You saw similar yeah. things starting to happen in late period South Africa, where it actually became far more violent and repressive in the 80s than it was in the 70s, um, because mm. the anti-apartheid movement was really gaining purchase. And frankly, the only reason it didn't happen uh, earlier was because Reagan and Thatcher were really obstinately against it. So we're starting, it's again, they've got their back up against the wall. Their imperial project is in jeopardy in the long term. Mm -hmm. And so they have to if they take that land now, it's the Americans, even if they have a different change of opinion, are never going to force them to give it back. But they're not going to be able to commit this rampant level of violence uh, carte blanche in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Well, so now to, to paraphrase Master Roshi from Dragon Ball Z, uh, a candle flickers most violently and brightly right before it's about to burn out. Wow. That's a, a very uh, good final thought. Um, but we're at that time. So, Jay, any final thoughts or plugs? Um, yeah, I mean, this is probably, you know, as someone who works at very conservative elite universities who will do, have very famously in Canada pushed people out for taking positions like this, I'm not going to post too much about my true identity. Uh, so I have no plugs. But I will say that something worth thinking about is, you know, some of these other Third rails, I think, are worth considering uh, and really having hard debates about, uh, like, what is a two-state solution? Uh, what isn't a two-state solution? What, like, if a two-state solution, two solution is viable, was it ever viable? Does it remain viable? Uh, and also, I think, really pushing back on these arguments uh, even further than they have been now about things like Israel's right to exist. Uh, versus uh, and the fact that uh, or the the argue these arguments that have been used since we were kids on us to indoctrinate us um, have less and less purchase and I think we can accelerate uh, their uh, dismantling and so I think these are hard conversations to have they're 
often uh, they and they're not always conversations that you can have because you it's very easy to lose a job or not be considered a job or you know it's you, no one wants to you know be disowned by their family but I think these third rails are things that we should be more active in engaging in because the opportunity is now. Yeah, that's that's a great sentiment to end on. Uh, and this has been the Israel episode. Thank mm-hmm. you.